good morning. In actual fact, uh, I conceived of this sermon series when I was a student at college. Uh, I think it was in first year. We did Amos as one of our set books. I read uh, Alec Mateer's commentary, I think twice, and I thought, I just have to preach in this book. It's so great. Uh, so uh, three and a half decades later, uh, I finally got to the last chapter. I hope it's worth waiting for. Before we reflect on God's word, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. Alexander Pope's dictum is as profound as it is poetic. Most of us just keep on hoping, whatever the odds. And this has surely helped many of us through the current crisis thus far. Hope that we don't get infected. Hope that the dreaded R number doesn't escalate. Hope that our ICUs and our medical teams won't be overwhelmed. Hope for an effective treatment or cure. Hope that a vaccine will soon be produced and be widely available. Hope that this new normal doesn't last that much longer and hope that the economy doesn't collapse altogether in the meantime. Hope is what keeps us going and saves us from despair. It sustains us in the face of crisis. But what about the kind of crisis that Israel was facing here in the book of Amos? Is there any light at the end of this particularly dark tunnel? Is there any hope beyond judgment? We might well think not. After all, Amos has had little positive to say thus far, and I'm really glad to have got to the final chapter where he does have something positive to say. But his message has been rather gloomy so far, to say the least, and not surprisingly, some have labeled him a prophet of doom. And so we might well expect to find a negative answer to the question here in chapter 9. Is there hope beyond judgment? Surely not. Surprisingly, however, the answer that Amos gives is much more nuanced than that. True, there's certainly no hope for some. Even so, there's a glorious hope for many. That's the message of this final chapter in a nutshell. The first half insists that there is no hope for some. In the light of God's inescapable justice, some will simply not survive. For some, there'll be no escape. The chapter begins with the fifth and the final vision in this closing section of the book. But this time, there's no introduction, there's no protest, there's no dialogue. Amos simply records what he saw and what he heard. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with a sword. Not one will get away, none will escape. Amos sees here the Lord standing beside the altar. Presumably it's the altar located in Bethel. Indeed, what God says here in chapter 9 echoes what was said about Bethel back in chapter 3. Here in chapter 9, however, it's not just Bethel's altar or Israel's mansions that are coming crashing down. It's the temple itself that's going to be shaken from top to bottom. Rather than providing any sanctuary, this building will collapse on those inside just like Dagon's temple fell on the Philistines in the time of Samson. 
but there'll be no rescue team working through this rubble. No, anyone crawling from this debris will be cut down by the sword. No one will get away. There'll be nowhere to hide from God's furious anger, verses 2 to 4. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate them from God's wrath. However deep they dig or however high they climb, they won't escape God's grasp. There'll be no hiding on Mount Carmel like Obadiah's 100 prophets. God will hunt them down and seize them. There'll be no refuge in the depths of the sea, as there had been for Jonah. No, these people will become taste bites for the sea serpent, the dragon of the deep. Not even exile will save them from death. Rather than protecting them, God's watchful eye will be their worst nightmare. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Remember, says Amos, these are no idle threats. God is more than able for the task. Just think about your liturgy, he says. Verses 5 and 6 and the earlier doxologies in the book are most likely extracted from Bethel's Book of Common Prayer or from Israel's Temple Hymn Book. Maybe they all come from the, the one song. Maybe it's their favorite song. If so, it may have gone something like this. I've tried to modernize it. Excuse the poetic license. He who forms the hills and wind reveals his thoughts to man. He who makes dawn darkness and turns mountains into plain. He destroys the strongholds, bringing fortresses to ruin. He makes dry land molten and all living in it mourn. He stirs the ground like rivers and then sinks it back again. His throne is up in heaven, but his footstool here remains. Commanding ocean's waters, he pours them on the land. His name's the Lord Almighty. He's a lion, not a lamb. I added that last line myself. But I think it captures the overall sentiment. See, it wasn't that these Israelites had tamed the lion or turned him into a cuddly toy or a timid lion like the one in The Wizard of Oz. No, they knew that this lion could roar. They believed that this lion had teeth, but they perceived him as a threat only to their enemies, the nations around them. They had domesticated Yahweh. They turned him into their own pet Rottweiler, if you like. His job was to protect them and to maul their enemies. As they well understood, Yahweh was more than able to judge the nations. But you see, his judgment would not just encompass all Israel's enemies. It would encompass all God's enemies. And unfortunately, that included Israel. So don't delude yourself, warns Amos. Don't depend on past experience. Don't presume upon God's favor. Don't abuse your privileges. You have no monopoly on God's providential care. Verse 7, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kur? Friends, this is shocking stuff, and it's meant to be. It's meant to knock the wind out of Israel's sails. Here they are, thinking themselves immune from God's judgment. Amos insists otherwise, just as he did back in chapter 3, where he said, Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought out of Egypt, 
You only have I chosen out of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. With privilege comes responsibility. As a nation, Israel had failed to recognize this. Thus, they were really no different from the other nations. They too should expect God's judgment. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. The situation for this sinful kingdom was evidently hopeless. Indeed, any hope they did have was delusional. Any idea that they might escape from this disaster was quite absurd. As Proverbs puts it, the hopes of the godly result in happiness, but the expectations of the wicked come to nothing. That was the case here. And that's the case for all who persist in rebellion against God. For all who choose to ignore God's warnings. For all who hope that somehow it'll be all right. That God won't call them to account. That all that matters is their, their baptism or their confirmation or their religious ritual their profession of faith, their church attendance, even their Christian ministry. Some people are persuaded that they can sin as they please and still have remission. But such was not the case for Israel, nor is it the case for us. For all such deluded sinners, there's no hope beyond judgment. Rather, God's judgment is final. But thankfully, friends, that's not how this book ends. Darkness and doom is not God's final word here. Rather, the, the closing verses assure us that there is hope beyond judgment for many, for a great many, due to God's persistent grace. The first hint of God's grace is found there in verses 8 and 9. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, for I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. Don't write God's promises off just yet, says Amos. God won't totally destroy Jacob's descendants. Yes, he'll give them a good shaking among all the nations, like something tossed around in a sieve, but not a pebble will reach the ground. Uh, several decades ago, when I was a teenager, I think, uh, I helped some neighbors make up a batch of concrete. I think it's the only time I ever did this. But my job was to, to separate the loose soil or the dirt from the small stones that would be mixed into the sand and cement. To do so, I used a gravel separator, which is a, a shallow wooden bucket with a wire mesh base which retains the pedals. So you sort of put the stuff into the, this sort of shallow bucket and you shake it all around and all the dust falls out and what you've got at the end are pebbles. I suspect that's the kind of instrument that verse 9 is referring to. Despite what many English versions suggest, there's absolutely no mention of grain or seed here. In any case, there is a clear contrast between what happens to these pebbles and what happens to the material that falls to the ground. As pointed out in verse 10, all the sinners among God's people, all those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us, they will die by the sword. I assume it's they who will fall to the ground rather than the pebbles. But however we understand the illustration, the point is this, God will leave himself a remnant. 
God's final word is not judgment, but restoration. I don't think Amos would quite agree with the, the statement at the top of the, the whiteboard there. I think he would say it's both rather than either or. Uh, but he would say that restoration is certainly part of it. Sorry if I've stolen someone else's thunder. <laughs> anyway, we, we arrive now at the most important and most positive part of this book as a whole, verses 11 uh, to 15. Uh, this part is actually so different from the rest that many think it's a later edition, uh, a post-exilic loss by a, a much less pessimistic uh, author. But as others insist, there's nothing here that's impossible for Amos to have said. Therefore, there's no knockdown argument for denying these closing paragraphs to Amos himself. Amos speaks here, firstly, of a restoration that will, in some sense, be all-encompassing or all-inclusive. In that day, I will, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. David's fallen booth or shelter is almost certainly an allusion to the Davidic kingdom of old. The language of reconstruction or repair is likely metaphorical. Booths or tents don't have broken walls or ruins to fix. Admittedly, Amos has anticipated the destruction of Jerusalem's fortresses back at the start of the book in chapter 2. However, the fallen shelter here in chapter 9 doesn't necessarily allude to the city of David or to its destruction. More likely, it refers to the Davidic Empire, something that broke up back in 930 BC, almost two centuries before the ministry of Amos. That's what God intends to rebuild as it was in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Now, unlike other Old Testament prophets, Amos says nothing about the king or how this multinational Davidic kingdom is going to be restored. He simply tells us that the Lord himself will do these things. However, the New Testament tells us how God did so through Jesus. Endorsing Peter's point about Gentile conversion, James, the Lord's brother, reminds the Jerusalem council that the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Now, you don't need to be a genius to realize that there are obvious differences between the text that James cites there and the Hebrew text here in Amos. The LXX has the rest of mankind seeking God, replacing Edom, with Adam, and making this subject, the subject of the verb seek rather than the object of the verb possess. And while the, the Hebrew words in the original are fairly similar, the precise meaning is clearly different. And yet the overarching point remains the same. Amos is anticipating a time when David's fallen tent will be restored to its former glory, and it will encompass not just the people of Israel, but people of all nations, who are called by God's name. As one commentator astutely remarks, if this verse had been misinterpreted or misapplied, the Western world might still be in pagan darkness. Think about that. What we have here in Amos and what we have there in Acts is the outworking of God's promises to Abraham, 
and to David. The prospect of blessing for all the families of the earth, God's plan for humanity, an international community of faith, such as the great hope that Amos is presenting here, albeit in embryonic form. But as he goes on to point out, the consequent blessing will not just be all-encompassing, it will be all-surpassing. Verses 13 to 15. Just look at how gloriously he portrays this new Davidic kingdom. Verse 13 describes it in terms of amazing abundance. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Not exactly a delightful prospect for a teetotaler like myself, but for some of you, I'm sure this is heaven and earth. So many crops that they, they won't have har finished harvesting before it's start time to start plowing again. They won't have finished planting before it's time to tread down the next batch of grapes. The hillsides will be awash with new wine, more than enough to gladden every heart. Friends, this new paradise is the promised land on steroids. It's a picture of superabundance, more than enough for all to enjoy. There will be no have-nots in this future kingdom. That's the prospect that God holds out to Israel and to us, to all who are called by his name. And God promises not just to bring us there, but to keep us there. And I will bring my people back from exile they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Whether we understand the first line of verse 14 as God bringing Israel back from exile or restoring their prosperity, the end result is the same. They'll get to enjoy this land of plenty, and they'll get to do so permanently. They won't be like the oppressors back in chapter 5 who build their mansions but don't get to live in them or plant their vineyards but don't get to drink their vine. No, God's people will live in the cities they build. They'll, they'll drink wine from the vineyards they plant. They'll eat fruit from the gardens they cultivate. Not only will exile be reversed, any future threat of exile will be eliminated. And like everything else in Amos, this prospect is sealed by God's word. Only now the one who promises to do all this, the one who provides this blessed hope, is the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God. When does God make good on all these promises? Well, in the messianic age, of course. An age that began when Jesus announced that the kingdom of God had come. An age that will culminate in that new heaven and new earth our eternal home of righteousness. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is but always to be blessed. The soul uneasy and confined from home rests and expatiates in a land to come. As Pope suggests, hope is indeed something that makes us different from the animals. And yet not all hope is the same. As Amos has warned us here, there's such a thing as false and misguided hope. Hope based on faulty assumptions. Hope based on misinformation. 
hope that ends in judgment and disaster. But there's also a sure and certain hope, a hope that helps us face today and the coming day with complete confidence, a glorious hope of eternal salvation beyond judgment. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.